I think for so long, I thought having, you know, a large appetite for food or honestly an appetite for food, just period. I thought that was not a good thing. And that was something I would spend my whole life working against <laughs> to, you know, I thought I was going to spend a lifetime trying to diminish my appetite. And then when I kind of zoomed out and I thought about that, I thought, wow, that's so fucking sad. And I guess my relationship to my appetite or my appetites now is one of just tremendous curiosity. I feel like I've spent so long trying to pretend I don't want things <laughs> that now I am just so curious about like, what do I want? And then finding moments when I want a lot of something or a lot of things. Like when I have like a large appetite, I am uh, just trying to go towards that with open arms. Hey, welcome to Can I Have Another Snack podcast, where I'm asking my guests who or what they're nourishing right now and who or what is nourishing them. I'm Laura Thomas, an anti-diet registered nutritionist and author of the Can I Have Another Snack newsletter. Today, I'm super pumped to be speaking with New York Times bestselling cookbook author, Julia Tertian. As well as writing cookbooks, Julia is the author of the Keep Cam and Cook On Substack and hosts the Keep Cam and Cook On podcast, both of which I highly recommend. She also hosts these awesome Sunday cook-along classes where you can make recipes in real time with her from the comfort of your own kitchen. So check them out if you're looking for some kitchen and recipe inspo. Julia lives in the Hudson Valley in New York State with her spouse Grace and their pets. So as you'll hear, Julia's career started off much more deeply rooted into wellness and diet culture, which was a reflection of her own difficult relationship with food. We talk about how she got from there to where she is now, which is a badass anti-diet advocate who is vocal about anti-fat bias in the food industry. And we have this really wonderful, delicious conversation about how healing it can be to reclaim appetites, both in terms of food and in a more generative and expansive sense. Julia talks about why this has been such a powerful tool as she divests from diet culture and shares how she deals with those funky body image days. So this may be my favorite conversation of the series so far. It just feels really wholesome and I know it's going to be one I keep coming back to and sending my clients to. So I really hope you love it too. And also check out Julia's work because she's really awesome. Before we get to the episode, I just wanted to give you a quick reminder that this is the last week where all the Can I Have Another Snack content will be free. So don't sweat, you'll still get a weekly pod and twice monthly essay from me if you're a free subscriber. But from the start of October, I'll be turning on the paid subscriber only features and sending out some posts to paid members only. So this is kind of a scary moment for me. It tells me whether or not this little newsletter and podcast has legs, if people are actually picking up what I'm putting down and whether or not there's a future here. To those of you who have already signed up, thank you so much. It means more than you know. And if you followed my work for a little while now, you'll know that earlier this year I had to close my business. My entire career trajectory was uprooted and I had to try and figure out my next moves while also trying to bring a sense of stability back to my family after an absurdly chaotic year, actually make that two years. 
anyone who has ever read one of my Instagram captions will know that I have a lot to say. But aside from my books, writing has never been part of my job. Substack offers this really neat model where I can make writing my job without having to sell out to do sponsored content or exploit my child for likes. He would get a lot of likes, by the way. Uh, but I don't want to. I don't want to exploit my my baby. And while I love my clinical work and I will always see clients, I want to make my work accessible to more people. I wanted to really give this my best shot, and that's what this month has been about to see if there's an appetite for conversations about food, bodies, and anti-diet parenting. So if you're in this for the long haul with me, then let me know by becoming a paid subscriber. There are tons of benefits to becoming a paid subscriber over and above the free subscription option. You'll get exclusive commenting privileges and access to our weekly discussion threads on Thursdays called Snacky Bits. You'll also get a monthly downloadable resource like the snack, uh, the snacks guide from earlier this month. You'll get access to uh, a column called Dear Laura, where you can submit questions and have a non-diet nutritionist in your pocket. You'll get bonus essays and access to all of the archived posts. Plus, you'll get my unwavering affection. It costs £5 a month or it's £50 for the year. You can also become a founding member if you're a Can I Have Another Snack stan, where on top of everything I just mentioned, I'll also send you a signed copy of both of my books. I'm suggesting £100 for that tier, but you can name your price, kind of like a donation to help me get this work off the ground. And if you can't afford to support me financially, then you can help spread the word by forwarding your emails to friends who might be interested. Liking posts also helps a lot. And you can rate and review on Apple Podcasts. And if you need a comp subscription for any reason whatsoever, then email hello at laurathomasphd.co.uk with snacks in the subject line and we'll hook you up. You don't need to give an explanation of your situation. I trust that if your circumstances change, you'll do your bit to support my work. All right, team. Thank you so much for being here and for supporting my work. Now let's get to this juicy conversation with Julia Tertian. All right, Julia, I want to know who or what are you nourishing right now? I love this question so much. Um, I think who or what am I nourishing first thing to come to mind is just myself. <laughs> um, I think I've been doing a lot of uh, nourishing of myself, which feels really important. Uh, in addition to that, I would say just my household, my spouse, Grace, our many animals, um, the house itself. I think we're just trying to do what we can to keep this a very nourished and safe and happy place. What does that mean to you uh, a nourished place I've never mm. thought <laughs> that in terms of of like a physical place before mm -hmm. I mean we were really lucky uh I guess it was I guess close to eight years ago we got to become homeowners um which is you know a huge privilege and something I think about a lot is that a house is it's also like this living thing mm. <laughs> you know our house we live in a really old house and there's I, you know, I could phrase it a number of ways. I could say there's always something broken or I could say there's always an opportunity to improve something. I don't know. But we're always kind of tinkering and adding things and fixing things and tending to things. So to me, a nourished house is one that's kind of just taken care of, you know, just like our bodies and, you know, anything that's urgent 
and broken and kind of dangerous is made safer, you know, and then we get to kind of enhance things too. And, you know, we just cleaned our like couch cushions, which is like the most annoying job, but (laughs) then it just makes our living room feels so nice and kind of fresh and, you know, stuff like that. We do a lot of, I guess, just home caretaking. That was kind of the word that was, that popped into my mind was care, just Mm. tending and caring Mm -hmm. to your physical space. And I love the reframe of, you know, rather than things being broken, which I think when you're a homeowner, that's kind of how you tend to view things, but flipping it and and thinking about okay what needs sort of a bit more TLC maybe yeah yeah I think I have to think about it that way or I'm very overwhelmed so I'm just trying to manipulate myself I guess I don't know (laughs) I think you sort of you know you alluded to this a little bit before when you said that you're nourishing yourself and and I'm not sure if you said you're working on yourself but it was sort of something to to that Mm -hmm. effect and this was something that I was gonna ask you about which is or I suppose just a preface is that you are someone who was on my radar ages ago like when I was deep in my wellness culture kind of days Mm -hmm. and then you kind of I think our paths kind of diverted a little bit and now I feel like you are popping up everywhere <laughs> in in all in all my usual haunts as it were mm-hmm. so I, I feel like yeah you're you're back on the radar as it were does it feel weird to compare you with like a submarine or something <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm happy to be a boat that's great yeah <laughs> but um I, I would be really interested to hear more about what that arc has been like for, for sure. you from your perspective and like what's been going on behind the scenes yeah so it sounds like like the arc from kind of wellness culture to maybe more like I don't know anti-diet kind of culture that arc or path or whatever for me has been incredibly personal um and I've also in the last probably like year or two something like that I've made it a bit more I guess public slash professional which Mm -hmm. those two things tend to blend a lot and my work has always been very personal and I've always in my cookbooks and my writing about food it's always been about you know what I'm cooking and eating and making for people and that used to be a lot of things rooted in diet culture, a lot of things rooted in what I've come to understand after many years of therapy was like a decades long eating disorder and getting myself out of that, you know, it's changed how, why, and what I cook Mm -hmm. and how I think about it. Um, So it's changed what I write and what I share and the kinds of conversations I have. And the more I've come to do this sort of healing work for myself this kind of nourishing work for myself like truly nourishing figuring out what it is I you know want and I'm not just talking about like intuitive eating like just in life in general what makes me feel my best and you know trying to do more of just those things and less (laughs) other things including my work. Um, you know we were just chatting very briefly before we started recording that I'm, I'm not working on any book projects right now which is all I've done for the last like 15 years or so Mm. you know taking myself a little bit further away from sort of like the publishing industry like just being in touch with all these types of things and doing this sort of more yeah I guess maybe paying closer attention 
to what makes me feel good as opposed to what I think I sh- I'm supposed to be doing, <laughs> what mm-hmm. I should be doing, mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. Yeah, that arc, that path has been both, yeah, personal and now a little bit more, I guess, loud. <laughs> so if I'm maybe reappearing on your radar, yeah, that's interesting for me to hear and to hear where I came up before. And, you know, I think that speaks to probably your journey as well. So, yeah, I mean, I could get more into it. I'm happy to, but I feel like I'm, I tend to go on slight tangents and I forget the actual question. <laughs> so. I mean, same. So this is going to be... <laughs> Uh, we'll keep each other (laughs) on board yeah I I, yeah there there were so many like threads that I wanted to pull on in what you were saying there and I think the first that struck me was this idea that you had upon reflection survived a 10 year long eating disorder and to me where my mind went immediately was just thinking about how pervasive and normalized diet culture is Mm -hmm. that an eating disorder can just slip under the radar like that. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I have a few thoughts about that. And one is that I think people who aren't in like the smallest of bodies Mm -hmm. tend to not be diagnosed and tend to not be given care and support. And, you know, I don't, it's, it's, it's tricky. I don't know. I don't have like a date on a calendar when I was like, oh, that's when I first developed an eating disorder. It was sort of a, you know, a thousand paper cuts kind of thing, I feel like, and, you know, very much around just the household and culture I grew up in, which was not very different than most people's, at least like in the West. (laughs) Um, And I think that I feel like my um, sort of my, my issues and challenges and and mental health issues like around food and around my weight. I mean, started really, really young, uh, but because I was always in like a slightly, like a little bit of a fat body, Mm -hmm. (laughs) I was just constantly told any effort I made to lose weight um, to make my body smaller was a really good thing. And it was rewarded and it was validated, which went on for yeah more than 10 years. And like for, you know, a huge portion of my life. And that is just really confusing to be struggling with something and then to get just a lot of validation, a lot of kind of like endorsement Mm -hmm. for that struggle. That's a very confusing thing. I think that's something a lot of people go through. Um, And I've talked to a lot of fat friends who have really, really similar experiences um, and people who are in bodies much larger than mine who Mm -hmm. deal with a lot more stigma and a lot more hate and who have had raging eating disorders and have never received any help and haven't known how to ask for it, where to ask for it, even how to talk about it. So I think that's kind of a big part of it for me. And yeah, I think the normalizing, the like socially accepting way a lot of eating disorders and just sort of disordered eating just is, you know, it's, it's just so pervasive. And I think especially among people who are, you know, Mm -hmm. socialized and conditioned as women, especially among, um, I think like affluent white women, it's, I think it's, it's, it's uncommon to not have that Mm -hmm. kind of, uh, relationship to food. I feel like I've viewed that a lot, not to say eating disorders. I mean, they're prevalent among people of all different races and backgrounds. Um, and I think appear in different ways, but, um, yeah, I think it's 
it's really fascinating to me how how much people are struggling and how little recognition there is of that and not even just the small amount of recognition but also like the celebrating that happens around that so you know back to your like first question which is just such a lovely question like in terms of who am I nourishing and the fact that my mind went to myself (laughs) something I think a lot about now at this point in my life is like I don't receive that much outside validation about my body from anyone anymore except really like my spouse and I used to when I was actively trying to like make myself smaller I used to hear a lot of yeah validation but now it's a type of validation I can give myself and I was never able to before so to me that's a form of nourishment um, to validate my own body and to treat it kindly and to give it what it wants and needs yeah what an amazing gift to be able to give yourself and I want to come back to that in a second, if I remember, <laughs> because as as you were talking earlier, just about, I think what colloquially or maybe more academically gets called weight stigma, mm-hmm. which is certainly a term that I've used before, but the more I'm doing this work, the less comfortably it, it kind of sits with me just because sure. for all kinds of reasons we can get into another time. But I think what we're talking about really is this an- deeply entrenched anti-fat bias in eating disorder care Mm -hmm. and um it made me think of dad burgard's uh quote about you know we we prescribe behaviors to higher weight folks or fat folks that we diagnose as disordered in thin and lower you know small that's not i'm paraphrasing obviously but but that i think that sentiment is so powerful and i remember the first time i heard deb say that it mm-hmm. kind of like really just stopped me in my tracks sure. so it's so true and then you know having worked in the eating disorder field and the number of clients that I've seen in bigger bodies and you know it they don't you know they could be kind of normal sized bodies in inverted mm-hmm. commas and still be gaslit and undermined and not believed just constantly and then I you know that only intensifies as people's bodies get get bigger yeah um so all of that is to say you know there's there's a lot that we need to do in in that space to make sure that folks across the weight spectrum get the appropriate care that they need and then going back to your I did remember going back to this (laughs) idea of of offering being able to offer yourself care and and sort of validation how how did you get to that point because Mm. I think this is something that so many of us struggle with sure constantly and that's not to say that you know you feel like you're nailing it every single day but I'm curious to hear you know what what does that look like for you yeah no I think that turning point question is so important it's something I ask a lot of other people too, because that's been really helpful for me to to find my own turning point. Um, It's so easy to kind of talk about the sort of like before or after that moment, but like, yeah, what like informs that moment? And I wish I had a simple answer. (laughs) I wish I was like, I read this one page and here it is and you can all have it too. Yeah. Again, it was just a large amount of small things. Mm -hmm. I would say the major ones are first was meeting Grace, um, my spouse, who also has a history of an eating disorder, 
That's something when we both brought to our relationship, just Grace was more aware than I was. So I got to have the benefit of being in love with someone who had been through something really hard that I was about to go through and didn't quite know. And so I had this built-in support that I'm just incredibly grateful for. I also had Grace's boundaries (laughs) because Grace entered into a relationship with someone who you know, me, who had a really, really just disgruntled relationship with my own body. And that was very challenging and triggering for Grace to be around. So Grace set up boundaries around that. Grace asked me not to talk about whatever diet I was on or asked me to kind of not talk about the excessive exercising I was doing. And, you know, I won't go into like more details. I know that can bring up stuff for people, but Grace set really firm boundaries in our relationship. And those were really helpful for me because made me kind of pause and I didn't feel judged in what I was doing, but I felt like, oh, if if what I'm doing is potentially causing the person I love harm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I think it's worth pausing and being like, is it causing me harm? Mm -hmm. So that was incredibly helpful. Another big thing that I would say informed this kind of turning point for me, this kind of, uh, I don't know what I can only think of as like a sort of like a paradigm shift is really doing the kind of uh, education and learning to understand where all of this comes from um, and to realize how not alone I am in any of this. I'm sure there's probably people who listen to your show. Like, I don't think we're just talking to each other, right? And there's probably a lot of people who understand what we're talking about. Like, we're, I'll say this to all of us, like, we're just not alone. This is so common. And it's common because it's not personal. Like, this all comes from these huge systems. And so the more I learned and continue to learn about things like racism and you know, the roots of anti-fat bias being very racist roots, being rooted in things like white supremacy, the more I understood these systems and and I've seen how diet culture and anti-fat biases comes from them. One, I get it more, like it just makes sense where it used to feel kind of, uh, I don't know, a bit more opaque. Now it just feels incredibly clear to me. And with that clarity, I guess two, I don't know if I'm like numbering things, <laughs> but, but yeah, with that clarity comes this feeling for me that feels very energizing where I don't feel, I don't feel so not, I don't mean this to be such a bad pun, but I just, I don't feel as weighed down by all of this. I feel like, oh, this isn't, I didn't do anything wrong. <laughs> like I yeah. have just grown up in a, in a group of systems that are really harmful. So kind of like to use the house metaphor we were talking about earlier, like I live in a house where a lot of things are broken. Yes. But like, there's a lot of opportunities to improve things, to make this a nicer house to live in, a safer house to live in. So looking at it that way to me feels, um, yeah, kind of galvanizing, like, and, and making it feel less personal also lets me take myself out of the center of it. Like I, I feel like I got to a place with diet culture, with my own eating disorder, where I just felt like I was sick of thinking about myself all the time, (laughs) talking about myself all the time. Like I felt like I got to this incredibly self-centered place that was, I don't know, sort of boring for me. Like I find other people a lot more interesting (laughs) or being in community with other people a lot more interesting. So yeah, yeah, I would say those are the major things was just my, 
my personal closest relationship and having this kind of anchor of, of love and safety and support mm. and understanding. And then the other big thing is sort of the opposite. It's like this understanding of huge systems that just aren't personal. Those yeah. two things really, really have helped me. And then some more tangible things are working on this in therapy, specifically with people who have training in, you know, helping people with eating disorders and specifically with people who have kind of a weight neutral anti-diet approach to that, because that's not everyone who's trained in eating disorders, as I don't it's have not, to explain to you. It can be so, so yeah. harmful if yeah. they don't have, if they're not using that lens. Yeah. That's the kind of thing that like, honestly, like keeps me up at night is thinking about how hard it is to ask for help to realize you even need help. And then to go seek it and have that help turn out to be more harmful. And then, you know, that can put you off of help in general. Like that just, it makes me so scared and mm -hmm. sad. But yeah, seeking out people who have this approach, that's been amazing. And the other thing that's been hugely, hugely helpful, which I continue to this day, is just not doing this kind of healing work alone. I've been part of like group therapy which has been amazing. I've also joined groups, including a hiking group that I like love so much that it used to be called the plus size hikers of the Hudson Valley. The Hudson Valley is where I live. And now there's been a, a renaming. Uh, it's the Body Liberation Hiking Club, just to kind of include some more people. But being with a group of people, expanding just my friendship circle and being able to be in community with people who have had similar experiences to not feel so alone in it has been really powerful. And it's helped me develop like language to talk about the people who are in my life who don't have that background. Yeah. That's been amazing because I think diet culture isolates us. I think it's part of how it sinks its teeth in and how it kind of thrives. So I think combating it in community is, is I don't know, for me, it's it works. <laughs> A hundred percent. This is kind of any of my clients who are listening, they'll recognize that I've been banging on about community quite a lot lately. And mm. it's for this exact mm -hmm. reason, you know, you, you said earlier that, you know, when you learn about all of the, you know, plethora of systems of oppression that mm -hmm. are kind of making us feel a particular way about our bodies, that when we kind of externalize the blame and the shame, we realize that it's not personal. It's not mm -hmm. about us. And at the same time, what you've just said is that diet culture makes us feel like we're completely alone in it. So mm -hmm. it does feel so personal, even mm -hmm. though it's not right. And I think like there, you know, there's connections to white supremacy culture in there. There's connections to capitalism in there in terms of like keeping us isolated and separated and, and, and make us feel like, you know, we're competing, not just with, the people around us but like our our past selves yeah yeah <laughs> big time just yes. so fucked up when you start yeah. to think about it yeah like I one of my things that continues to be like a really big challenge for me and I know a lot of people feel this too is like is seeing you know a picture of myself from a different mm. point in my life when my body was different when it was smaller and feeling that kind of like competing with myself thing and then yeah. talking myself through that moment and, you know, remembering what I was experiencing mm -hmm. to be in that body and also not belittling that time in my life either. And just 
you know, just trying to be compassionate kind of all around. But yeah, that is definitely like a hard thing for me. And then I have the moment where I think, wow, this feeling of feeling like competitive with myself or just judging myself, which is all I think like competition is, Mm -hmm. that's part of it, right? So Mm -hmm. then I just in that moment, I'm like, oh, that's what this is. (laughs) And to just be able to name it just helps Mm -hmm. me move through it more quickly and not Mm -hmm. kind of dwell in it and have it, you know, get me down. Yeah. And and I think that's also where that community piece comes in again, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Being able to say, uh, I'm feeling like this because mm-hmm. of this and, and yeah. have that validated and have that held yeah. tenderly. And then someone also remind you, well, yeah, but like, that's what you've been indoctrin- indoctrinated to think. Yeah, of you think like exactly. That, just pull you back out yeah. a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Having someone else whether it's in person on zoom or maybe listening to a podcast, whatever, but having someone else just be able to say like, of course, (laughs) like, of course, this is why you feel that way. Like I have experienced that moment so many times and it is, it's never not helpful (laughs) to just have someone just see that and get it. And, you know, to feel not alone in that is a really incredible feeling. Something you have been talking about a lot on your podcast recently, which I have just been eating up, (laughs) (laughs) is you've been kind of exploring appetites Mm -hmm. with people and what it means to be a human that has an appetite and what it means to embrace your appetite and um, not be ashamed of it, I suppose. And so I'm really curious to turn that question back Mm -hmm. on you and ask Mm -hmm. you, What's your relationship with your appetite now? Um, well, first, thanks for listening. Yeah, it's been a great series to work on because I'm just I'm fascinated by this word and this concept. And I think for so long, I thought having, you know, a large appetite for food or honestly, an appetite for food, just period. I thought that was not a good thing. And that was something I would spend my whole life working against. <laughs> to You know, I thought I was going to spend a lifetime trying to diminish my appetite. And then when I kind of zoomed out and I thought about that, I thought, wow, that's so fucking sad. And I guess my relationship to my appetite or my appetites now is one of just tremendous curiosity. I feel like I've spent so long trying to pretend I don't want things (laughs) that now I am just so curious about like, what do I want? And then finding moments when I want a lot of something or a lot of things, like when I have like a large appetite, I am uh, just trying to go towards that with open arms. And I feel grateful to be someone who wants, yeah, who wants, (laughs) I'm grateful to be someone who wants. Um, I'm grateful to live a life that has desire in it. Um, But I know there's a lot of things I want because there's a lot of things I enjoy and it's not just food, but it's also very much food. Like I love food <laughs> and I love cooking. And part of why I've spent so long working on cookbooks and doing the work I've done is because I genuinely love it. Like I love growing it. I've, I've spent a lot of the last kind of year or two working at a farm. I love preparing it. Like I love cleaning vegetables. It's like a really, I don't know, it's something most people hate, but like I love running water. I'm grateful for running water. Like, and I love cooking and I love eating. And like my favorite memories, like my, especially like my closest friends, I just got home from a week with 
two of my absolute best friends and we all just love to eat together. And it's like where so many of my best memories are. So there's so much joy there and so much pleasure. And I guess I'm just pretty sick of trying to make that smaller. I just, I want, I want lots of that. Um, So I guess that's where I am with my appetite now for food specifically and just my appetites in general. I just feel very open, I think. Yeah. I love that you pluralize. Is that a word? (laughs) I'm with you. Maybe. I don't know. (laughs) And I, yeah, I love the, the kind of thinking about it, about the word appetite in a kind of more generative and expansive Mm -hmm. way rather than just simply food. Although, you know, what I'm really hearing you say is that being able to reclaim your appetite has been, it sounds really healing and really powerful. Yeah. Yeah. It definitely has been for sure. And, and I, you know, yeah, sorry, my brain's going in lots of different (laughs) directions. I just, I guess, I guess something that I want to also acknowledge is that, you know, that that in and of itself is, is a privilege, right? Being able to, to own of course, your yeah. appetite and your desire. I was rereading Roxane Gay's memoir, Hunger, recently, and it just kind of, yeah, it was just prompting me there that, that that's, it's an enormous privilege to be able to own your appetites and desires around food, particularly, you know, um, as your body gets bigger and there's a, mm-hmm. a loss of privilege that, yeah. that comes along with that. So I just, yeah, I just wanted to acknowledge that more than anything. Sorry, were you going to add something to that there? No, I was just thinking, I, I appreciate you doing that and kind of adding that layer to it. Cause it is so complicated. You know, it's really, it's lovely for me to sit here and tell you how much I love to cook and eat. I mean, that's great, but it's also there is, I mean, it, that's like reeks of privilege, like Grace, my my spouse, we do a lot of work with our local food pantry. And I'm mm-hmm. always thinking about, you know, my neighbors, like people I live with in my zip code, in my community, who don't have the same agency I have to choose mm-hmm. what I'm eating. You know, even if we're able to give as much choice as we possibly can at the pantry, it's still not, it's not the experience I have of going to the farmer's market and then this grocery store to purchase this brand of thing I like and to go to the other store because they have the bread I prefer and to have the time to do all that, to have the money to do all that, to have those resources, to have the kind of choice I have mm-hmm. is a huge, huge privilege. So yeah, not to mention what you brought up with Roxanne's book, which is just, you know, so phenomenal, but yeah, the privilege of being in a body that isn't judged as much as others Mm -hmm. when I am eating to be able to eat what I want in public is a privilege. So yeah, it goes on and on and on. And I think I just appreciate any opportunity to like name those things and recognize it because none of it is that simple. It's like all incredibly nuanced. Yeah, no. And, and I think of you very much as someone who's very aware of your privilege and will name it at you know, with unprompted, without <laughs> any kind of like, you're like, here's all my privilege. Look at it. Um, and and at the same time, I brought you here. I invited you here to talk about you and your appetite. And and there is something so powerful about being able to reclaim appetite and appetites. And I was wondering if you could, for anyone who's like, well, that's a bit abstract. When you talk about appetites. Mm-hmm. Are you able to just kind of share a little more what that looks like in your life? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess I use the term appetite to mean anything 
I guess that I'm longing for or that I desire. And I think it's, yeah, it's interesting to have this question turned on me. <laughs> I think it's, I hate when that happens yeah. when you're doing an interview and you're like, what? Oh God, that's what it feels like. <laughs> it's really interesting because I think there's, there's things we need, right? Like we need food and clothing and shelter. We can have appetites for those things, but mm-hmm. I guess I, I think about appetite as kind of, yeah, it can, I guess all needs have appetites maybe, but not all appetites are necessarily needs. I don't know. I might Mm. be making this too complicated, but I, yeah, I guess I think about appetite and the plural of appetite, multiple appetites as being a way to describe the things I want, not just the things I need is I guess Mm. a simpler way of saying that. So for me, that includes things like I have a large appetite for rest. (laughs) Like Mm. I want a lot of rest. It's not something I've permitted much of in my life. And I have at this point in my life, a large appetite for it. I want, I guess, a lot of connection. Like I have an appetite for connection. Like I want time with my friends. I want time with my family. I want time with my spouse that, you know, isn't just both of us like on our phones while we're watching TV. (laughs) I want no shade if that's all. Yeah, no, I mean, it happens a lot. <laughs> you can muster up we all need to zone day. out. Totally. I have a large appetite for nature. I mm. feel my best when I'm outside. I have a big appetite for water, like being in water, like pool, ocean, shower, what a puddle. I don't care. Like I love being in water. So I guess my appetites are when I'm in touch with them. To me, that means I'm in touch with the things that make me feel just really good. And I guess overall, my appetite is I want to feel good. And the more I'm able to do that, the more time and energy I have to help provide that for other people. I love that everything that you talked about there. I mean, again, with all the caveats around, around privilege, but everything you talked about there was non-material, right? Mm, That's true. Yeah. And as I'm, you know, I'm always kind of half thinking with like a clinician's hat on. Sure. I was just thinking about this idea that maybe some of those indulging, as it were, some of those other appetites may be more accessible for people as they are, you know, reclaiming appetites, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, being able to kind of take pleasure in the outdoors or in water or with rest might feel like an easier starting point than than food like yeah to kind of graduate towards totally and I think at least for me the anytime I am aware of an appetite of mine and I go towards that thing and I experience it it liberates me to seek that Mm. in other areas so you know, the more I take a nap when I'm tired, the more I remind myself that it's okay to like feel what my body wants and provide it. So that can then later extend to food, um, you know, or other things. So I think if it feels more accessible to acknowledge your appetite in one area of your life, like I definitely would start there. <laughs> like go through the door that feels easy to walk mm-hmm. through. Food can be hard. It can, I mean, I definitely know that. So 
I think sometimes when it comes to recovery and healing, a thing I notice myself doing, which I'm sure is true for a lot of people, is you kind of get stuck in the same mindset Mm -hmm. that got you to the place where you you need the healing and recovery. Like sometimes I feel like I need to ace healing. Yes. Like I need to excel Mm -hmm. at healing. Mm -hmm. I need to be the best at healing. (laughs) And it's like, what are you doing? (laughs) This is how you got here. I, I totally get what you mean. I had this conversation with a client the other the other week who was like seeing this is kind of a detour, but she was seeing a lot of kind of examples of intuitive eating that kind of had this like wellnessy tint kind mm-hmm. of to them and and she felt like she was failing at intuitive eating. Mm. And I felt kind of heretic. I feel felt like a heretic saying it at the time, but I was like, what if we just don't use the label intuitive eating? If that's not mm-hmm. helpful for you, then let's just completely ditch that. And yeah. because otherwise what we're doing is replicating that same all or nothing black and white perfectionist thinking that made you so good at dieting in the first Exactly. Place. Yeah, exactly. I like, I also, I think about the word success all the time. Like Mm. said your client felt like they weren't succeeding at this Mm. and I'm constantly just evaluating how I'm defining that word and what it means. And And so whether it's, sorry, I just, I'm so curious to hear what, cause you know, in my mind, you know, I guess ostensibly you are a successful person. You've written Mm. best-selling cookbooks so I'm so curious to hear what your relationship to that word sure. is now. Yeah. I mean, in terms of like, um, I guess, career wise or professionally, you know, I guess the way I think about success now is just having total control over my time, mm-hmm. <laughs> being able to say no to things because it gives me more time and gives me more flexibility around my time that to me feels like success um and being able to be uh, you know comfortable enough I mean that financially but I also mean that in terms of like time Mm -hmm. um to be able to I think help the people I'm closest to and help my community that feels like success like we I don't know maybe it was February or something of this year there's a really terrible ice storm in our area. And I don't know why, knock on wood, but we didn't lose power, even though like everyone else did. And good friends of ours who live nearby, they did. And, you know, it was February in the Northeast and an ice storm. So, you know, their house was quickly turning freezing cold and Mm -hmm. I think their water didn't work, all that kind of stuff. And so they came over with their dog and their cat and (laughs) they stayed with us for a few days until their power came back. And we had such an easy time kind of welcoming them, kind Mm -hmm. of wrapping our arms around them. We had plenty of food to share. We had a really good time. We like, you know, watched TV and we cooked and, and we were all safe and fine. And Grace said to me, it has really stayed with me. Grace was like, this feels like success. Like, Mm. you know, getting your book on any particular list or getting a certain amount of money for an advance or that kind of stuff. Like, yeah, those are all markers that mean a lot of things to a lot of people, but getting to be able to like provide this safe space for our friends when there was a really bad storm like that felt successful um so I would say that's how I define it kind of professionally in terms of 
kind of healing work, like this idea of, it just really has struck me, this idea of someone trying to succeed at intuitive eating. Like I just really identify with that and where I am with that kind of personal kind of internal work, the way I think about success is how do I repair mm-hmm. as opposed to like prevent. Um, so what I'm thinking about is like that example I gave before about like, it can be hard for me to see pictures of myself when my body was different. So for a while, I just stopped looking at any pictures. It's like, if I don't look at them, then it's not challenging, which was really helpful for a while because I just wasn't really ready to. Um, And then I thought, oh, if I do enough kind of work and therapy and whatever, and all this personal kind of internal work, maybe I can get to a point when if I see a picture, I won't feel anything. Like I'll just feel neutral. Or I'll feel like I love my body no matter its size or shape or, you know, this like really kind of Pollyanna Mm -hmm. thing. (laughs) And now I feel like I might not be able to prevent that feeling, but I know I can repair Mm -hmm. when I, when I have a hard time. So to me, success is in the, is in the repair and it's not being afraid to feel kind of hurt, but knowing I can kind of get through it. That feels Mm -hmm. like. I don't know if that's success, but it's like definitely where I feel most energized. Well, it's definitely a much more realistic approach. You know, Mm -hmm. we're we're never going to be able to fully tune out diet culture as much as, you know, we'd love to create that. Yeah. 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 It's just, you know, probably not going to happen in our lifetime at least, but having the tools to be able to, as you say, repair when there's that rupture Mm -hmm. between you and your body, Mm -hmm. um, that feels like definitely I don't know the success like you say doesn't doesn't feel quite right but it feels like that's that's the right track to be on yeah totally yeah yeah so I would love to know who or what is nourishing you right now Mm. this question feels easier to answer (laughs) um there are so many people and things nourishing me um grace who I've talked a lot about our animals. We have two dogs and a cat who provide uh, such huge amounts of just joy and humor and uh, like non-judgment mm. <laughs> and just affection. And they nourish me so much. And my closest friends nourish me so much. And I, I mentioned briefly, but I just got home from about a week with two of my closest friends. One has two young kids and we've all known each other for a long time now. And, you know, getting to watch like one of my best friends, like become this really awesome parent Mm -hmm. is that feels really nourishing. It feels really incredible to watch people you love just enter new chapters. Um, That feels really good. And uh, yeah, deeply connected. Um, I was realizing the other day, like, oh, wow, I've known your kids since they were born. Like they're really little now, (laughs) but like, I'll know these people since they were born. Like, that's so cool. Um, that made me feel really happy. So yeah, I guess people and animals are very nourishing to me and where I live. I, I get to live in a place where I can go hiking a lot and I can go see a really beautiful view and I just have a lot of opportunities to remember the world is a lot bigger than me. Oh, it has been so, I think, I feel like I say this to all my guests. I hope the listeners don't get bored of me saying this, but it's so nourishing (laughs) just to have these conversations, which is really the idea behind this podcast. So um, I hope that it's, it's felt nourishing for you as well. Before you go, 
I would love it if you could tell us what you're snacking on right now. So that <laughs> is, <laughs> um, that can be, you know, literally a, a snack that you're enjoying, or it can be kind of anything, a book, a TV show, anything. I would just sure. love to hear what your recommendation is. Yeah. Oh, I have many. Um, but first I will just <laughs> tell you, yes, this has been very nourishing for me and just great. And um, I think conversations like this one, to me, are a big part of this kind of healing work and help me just feel connected to, you know, you in this moment, feel more connected to myself, just to have a chance to reflect on this and obviously to feel connected to whoever you know, has stayed with us mm. till the end of this conversation. So I'm sure lots of people will be yeah. hanging on till the very end. <laughs> so thank you. Um, what am I snacking on? So much. I am literally snacking on uh so much popcorn. <laughs> I make mm. popcorn all the time, but we also live near a place, I don't know how widely available it is outside of the East Coast, but there's a popcorn company called Bjorn Corn, B-J-O-R-N. And it's actually made really close to where we, we live and they make all these great flavors and it's just so good. And I buy so many bags of it and it's delicious. And I just had some, which is why it's oh, on my mind. Yum. But other than popcorn and lots of, I'm like in a big melon moment. Melons are really good right now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> also lots of oh, ice. I really miss late summer in the North the northeast and like going to yeah but like the farmers markets are they are like now's the time yeah like i know that from when we're recording this comes out it'll be you know a little bit but the kind of end of august beginning of september is like if you're gonna go to a farmer's market just like one or two weeks of the year like Mm -hmm. go now (laughs) like Mm -hmm. now is just the best time so yeah like a piece of toast with a lot of mayonnaise and a sliced tomato and lots of salt Mm. that's a go-to snack right now And other than all these delicious foods and getting lots of soft serve ice cream, other things I'm snacking on that I think are, I don't know, sort of pertain to the conversation we're having. I feel like I've been telling everyone in my life to read Angela Garbus's book, (gasps) Essential Labor, which I believe her subtitle is Mothering as Social Change. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I got to talk to her on my podcast. She's incredible. She's such a phenomenal just person and thinker and writer and her book, whether or not you're a parent, you know, Grace and I, we do not have biological children. I, I don't mean biological. I mean, human children is what I meant to say. We have animals is what we have. Um, but even still, I took just so much from Angela's book and the way she talks about care work, which is, I think, really what we're talking about today, yeah. I think is just really profound. I think anyone who got anything out of our conversation would get so much, so much more out of Angela's book. I have been buying it for all yeah, of my friends. It's so it's incredible. So transformative. It's incredible. And then a TV show, just to throw in there. Mm-hmm. I have watched now for the second time um, Lizzo's show, which is yeah. her what's it called like welcome to the big girls girls, I might be getting that wrong or just big girls and it's her kind of reality show about getting backup dancers uh for her performances and it's incredible I just love it love it love it I think it's kind of required viewing for everyone okay I have forgotten actually that it exists I haven't (laughs) seen it yet I'll put my hand hold my hand Uh, I'm so jealous that you get to watch it for the first time (laughs) I'm so envious I keep it, it. I keep meaning to, and then it just like, yeah, I forget. It, that seems to be a theme. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna, I'm gonna write it down because I, I really need to get on. That. I've heard amazing things about it. So, 
Um, it's so much okay. fun. It's just great fun to watch. And it's just really sweet. And yeah, I think incredibly empowering. Oh, I need to check it out for sure. So my thing real quick, I feel like I'm probably really late to the game with this and you might have read it, but it kind of, it's called, Oh, I, mm-hmm. yeah. Crying in, <laughs> I'm holding the book up for <laughs> Julia to see, but it's called crying in H Mart. It's by Michelle. I think Zoner is how you pronounce her last name. And it is, this isn't a spoiler, but basically this young, I believe she's Korean American Mm -hmm. woman. Her mother dies and she's kind of exploring their tumultuous relationship through food and the meaning of food and and what that means, um, what that meant for their relationship Mm -hmm. and and what it means for her going forward. And I'm only a couple of chapters in and it's just such a beautifully written book. It's kind of got, it's got a bit of everything in it. So um, yeah, but the, the, bringing the, you know, all the stories kind of revolve around food, which totally. I really enjoy. And I love that about Angela's book as well. There was so much food. So and much then food. Mm-hmm. I think I found out on, was it your podcast? I think I found out that she used to be a food writer. And ah, like, oh, that makes yeah. sense. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. For a newspaper in Seattle, I was like, yeah, this makes sense. That tracks, totally. right? really I tracks. recently, I don't know, maybe a month or two ago, I read crying in H Mart and I felt the same I felt like everyone in my life had read it and I don't I like was like how come I haven't read this yet so I just read it her writing is beautiful and yeah food is everywhere in that book and I think she just reminds us how much it can mm-hmm. kind of tether us to other people so mm-hmm. yeah I yeah. love that 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 was your your snack oh, yeah well <laughs> I'll link to that in the show notes and some of the other bits and pieces like Angela's book that that we mentioned and I'll also link to your newsletter, which I just, I have to just gush about for a second because I love it. And I just love that the way that as I'm reading it, I feel like you're kind of, you're telling me what to do, but I don't mean that in like a, you're not doing it in a patronizing way, but it's in just this really like, here's how you can do this. And I just feel like <laughs> you're right there kind of like holding our hands through it. I'm thrilled. It feels that way. That's great. Yeah. And it just, it's so helpful because there's like all these like great, I think, I feel like your cooking is about making things like just not easy in like a, again, in like a patronizing way, like trying to like water things down, but just like what's going to be accessible and tasty and delicious and just like make food like joyful that's yeah. like, I really, there is this like palpable joy that I get from your newsletter. Um, So I will link to that. I, I think you've changed my mind about air fryers. Like, <laughs> <laughs> that's really, that's success. <laughs> if I had a counter, if I had enough counter space in my like tiny postage stamp sized apartment in London, then I would definitely be getting one of those, but I don't. So, um, that's so um, funny. Yeah. I thought they were like the reserve of like the 60 plus set and yeah, you've changed my mind on that. I mean, that's where I am emotionally for sure, but (laughs) I'm thrilled to hear you say all this. Uh, Um, but, but yeah, so would you like to let everyone know where they can find you on the internet and yeah for sure shops, I guess I mean, everything about me my work the various kind of things I've done and I do it's all at juliatertian.com um I'm on Instagram at tertian and yeah right now the things that I'm excited about and that I'm doing regularly are writing a 
mostly a once a week newsletter, sometimes a little tiny bit less, sometimes a little bit more, but yeah, a mix of kind of recipes and some essays and a love letter to my air fryer, which I just really do adore. Um, it's not for everyone, but for those of us who love it, it's great. And I also teach these online live cooking classes every Sunday afternoon, which is something I started nearly a year ago. And they are just so much fun. And it's kind of this opportunity I have once a week to just together with other people who love to cook at home to do what you just described as best I can to make cooking feel really joyful and really approachable. Mm -hmm. And I just, I love teaching these classes and I've taken a little time off during the summer, but they're back now in September. And yeah, it's, I look forward to it so much and people from, yeah, all over the world join. So if it's not at a convenient time for you, they are recorded. So you can watch it at a different time, but yeah, they're a lot of fun. Oh, and so all of that's on my website. It's yeah. All on your website. And also your newsletter and your podcast are both called uh, Keep Calm and Cook On. So mm-hmm. I'll link to everything in the show notes for everyone. Awesome. Julia, well, this has you. been such a delight. I knew it was <laughs> going to be great talking to you, but I had even more fun than I expected. So oh, thank you so thank much you. for being here. Yeah. Thank you for having me. This was great. This felt very meaningful and I just felt very held in this. So thanks for, for asking me. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Can I Have Another? Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Can I Have Another Snack? If you enjoyed this episode, please take a moment to rate and review in your podcast player and head over to laurathomas.substack.com for the full transcript of this conversation, plus links we discussed in the episode and how you can find out more about this week's guest. While you're over there, consider signing up for either a free or paid subscription to the Can I Have Another Snack newsletter, where I'm exploring topics around bodies, identity, and appetite, especially as it relates to parenting. Although it's totally cool if you're not a parent, you're welcome to. We're building a really awesome community of cool, creative, and smart people who are committed to ending the tyranny of body shame and intergenerational transmission of disordered eating. Can I Have Another Snack is hosted by me, Laura Thomas, edited by Julie Kelly. Our funky artwork is by Caitlin Pricer, and the music is by Jason Barkhouse. And lastly, Fiona Bray keeps me on track and makes sure this episode gets out every week. This episode wouldn't be possible without your support. So thank you for being here and valuing my work, and I'll catch you next week.